0: Welcome to episode 23 of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. I'll be joined for today's interview by co-host Kara Goucher. As we switch gears today from interviewing mostly athletes or former athletes to actually talking to an academic. Roger Pelkey will be joining us on the show today. He actually has a PhD in political science and is a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder where he is actually the director of the sports governance center within the the department of athletics and roger has a fascinating background on topics that are related to clean sport as well as broadly to sports governance and so with him we'll be talking about his involvement in these issues as both an academic as well as in some ways an advocate We will talk to him today about the Kasser Semenya case and his involvement with that on the topic of sex testing in sport. We'll talk to him about the Russian doping doping scandal and also get into depth on why the IOC, the IAAF, and WADA can't effectively govern doping given the structure of those organizations. And then we talk at the end about how to potentially fix the system, including ways to promote athlete empowerment on this topic of clean sport. So again, switching gears today, but I think you'll find this a both fascinating, but also very educational discussion on all things clean sport. So with that as an intro, let's jump into the conversation with Roger Pelkey. Welcome Roger Pelkey to the Clean Sport Collective podcast. How are you doing today, Roger?
1: I'm doing great. It's great to be here.
0: So we wanted to start with you, Roger, and just get a little bit of your background. I know you have a PhD in political science, but, and you've been at the University of Colorado for a very long time. But give us a sense for your academic background and then how that has evolved from a career standpoint.
1: Yeah, I don't know. All right, it's 1968. Oh, no, uh, <laughs> um, I was on a path to become a scientist like my dad um, and I had a chance to go to Washington, D.C. when I was in grad school and work for the House Science Committee, um, which is a, the committee that funds science in the United States. And I discovered I liked being at that intersection of um, science and politics and policy. Um, so I went on and got a PhD in uh, political science. Um, and I'm interested in the use and misuse of science in decision making. So started out um, working on disasters, on climate change and energy policy, and eventually um, took an interest to questions in sports, um, mainly because I played soccer all my life and uh, I started out with an interest in FIFA, which um, around 2010, 2011, um, FIFA kind of blew up, <laughs> exploded due to the uh, scandal in awarding the World Cup to Qatar. And I thought, well, you know I know a lot about soccer. I'm a political scientist. I should be able to figure out FIFA. So I spent about a year studying FIFA and I wrote a paper. Um, on how to improve the governance of FIFA, which actually became really timely, latest, greatest thing um, as FIFA was on the front pages, uh, which was to me really rewarding, and I realized there's not a lot of scholars um, in this area. Um, And so the topics just kind of showed up at my front door, Um, doping in sport, sex testing in sport, all of which um, are kind of in my wheelhouse involving science, the misuse of science, politics, a lot of politics, Um, and obviously I work at a, you know, big division one university. And the issue of college athletics um, and universities is another big topic I've worked on.
0: Before we get to sport, you also had something to do with the space shuttle, right? Um,
1: I wrote my master's thesis on the space shuttle a bazillion years ago. Talk um, about it, that. Yeah. I found
0: it fascinating. I read just a little bit.
1: Yeah. Um, so this was when I, when I actually worked at the House Science Committee. Um, I asked the staff there, um, I said, you know, I'm about to write a master's thesis, what would be useful to you guys? And the answer I got back from the staff there was, tell us how much we've spent on the space shuttle program. And my response was, isn't that what you're supposed to do? <laughs> You tell <laughs> um, me. Yeah, you tell me. So, um, actually, it was a it was a huge project, and the way government budgets work, nobody will be surprised at this, is um, kind of obscure. and detailed and technical. So I had to go into all sorts of budgets for NASA, um, the appropriations from Congress into different bins and add it up. And- um,
0: And you were excited about this.
1: Yeah, it was great, yeah. It was, um, (laughs) I came up with the conclusion um, that each space shuttle launch, if you add up all the costs, um, was about $1.2 billion. Wow. And the number NASA used at the time um, was just the cost of filling it up with hydrogen. 16 million. Fill it up. So my master's thesis wound up in the New York Times. Um, and I got a call from NASA and they asked me to withdraw it because it was calling, causing them political trouble. I said, I can't withdraw it. It's my master's thesis. <laughs> I need so, that. So that was that. the first kind of big controversy um, of many that I've had the pleasure of being involved in. Uh, because when you start looking at data and evidence, um, it can be uncomfortable because it doesn't always fit people's... Desires or political wishes,
0: but it di- didn't it go further than that, though, because you were also at some point talking about predicting space shuttle disasters.
1: Yeah, um, it, the the space shuttle. I mean, it's it's, it's tragic, but um, after Challenger was lost, that was I think the thirty second or thirty third flight. Um, that gives you some data on you know what's the expected reliability of this launch vehicle. Which which in the space community, um, that's that's how you assess reliability. And um, the numbers that NASA was using again were, were entirely unrealistic. So, you know, this is a really kind of a sad story, but um, I, I had in, in my mind I was going to write something, an op ed or something, on the risks of the space shuttle. Um, and I happened to write a, an op ed in uh, the Houston Chronicle, which is where Johnson Space Center is uh, located. Um, about a couple of weeks before Columbia exploded, about the risks and how we should be prepared for losing another space shuttle. Um, you know, it, it was tragic and unfortunate, but I think it was an entirely foreseeable disaster just from the standpoint of evidence and, and data.
0: So, which seems to be your specialty is drilling in, pulling back the curtain on maybe the common hell beliefs or the the simple answer solutions issues and using data to support a perspective or maybe both perspectives. So in the context of sport, beyond the FIFA work that you did, what was the first thing that you got involved with?
1: Uh, The next big project I I took on, I guess, um, was the the case of Castor Semenya um, and sex testing in sport, Mainly, um, mainly through teaching because, um, I mean, nobody cares about FIFA governance, really, except soccer nerds. Um, but the, the issues of how do you use science to make decisions um, is really an interesting one and a, and a tough one. Um, and for students, I'm always looking for cases that they're not familiar with. Because if I say, oh, climate change, um, students will say, oh, I've known about that ever since I was born, and I have really strong views on that. And it's hard to, to crack into those views. Um, but if you say sex testing in sport, you know. People will, first thing they'll do is look at you funny if they haven't heard about it Um, because if you don't follow athletics, you don't know who Castor Semenya is. Um, Certainly not 10 years ago, very few people outside of sport did. Um, But for me, that case um, proved to be the the, the best case to introduce students to the challenges of using science um, in decision making because really what everybody wants is, oh, I'm going to take a blood sample from you and I'm going to tell you if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't work like that. Um, and sport has failed um, over and over again for the last half century in trying to use science to, to make a judgment as to who's a woman. Um, so as I started teaching that, obviously you have to know something about it to teach it, got into the literature um, and realized this is really a question of science, regulation, politics. Um, so I started writing articles um, on the topic, studying it. Um,
0: and this was ten years ago, before some of the recent news.
1: Yeah, um, my first paper, I think, um, when I felt confident enough that I had my views kind of set, um, came out in twenty sixteen. Um, it was it's titled "Sugar, Spice, and Everything Nice," because that's what little girls are made of. Right, um, and that's the goal of IAAF is to figure out what little girls are made of. Um, so, um, and then you know th- things got kind of crazy. Um, you know, in the last couple years, um, I and a couple colleagues uh, were able to get our hands on some IAAF data that they used to support the, the most recent testosterone regulations and we found that it was full of errors. And we, uh, that was written up in the New York Times. We published a paper on it, um, it long story there, but eventually I um, was called as a expert witness for, for Castor um, before the Court of Arbitration for Sport earlier this year
0: I know Kara wants to jump in, but can you just give us a quick primer on the issue for those who may not know who Castor Semenya is? Yeah. Cliff Notes version. Cliff Notes.
1: Castor Semenya is a South African middle distance runner. Uh, She was born, identified as a female, raised as a girl, has maintained a constant gender identity all her life. Um, In 2009, um, she was well known in South Africa and um, I guess in the sporting world. But she burst on the international scene in Berlin at the World Championships um, when she blew away the field in the 800 meters. And she wasn't shy about it. Um, She strutted afterwards, flexed her muscles, um, and immediately um, it became a big international controversy, primarily because of how she looks, Um, some of her competitors, um, including uh, Maria Savinova, who got caught up later in the Russian doping scandal, which is ironic, um, criticized her for being too masculine-looking. Um, the the head uh, medical officer for IAAF said publicly, um, you know, maybe she's a woman, but not a hundred percent a a real woman. Um, so there was this this very intrusive um, uh, sort of focus on her, primarily because of who she looks, and that started what has been a decade-long campaign uh, by the IAAF against her um, in trying to get her out of sport. Um, and they've succeeded twice now. Um, she came back after the first time she was suspended, and she's currently suspended under the, the regulations. Um, and the question is, that's been raised is, how do you determine who should be eligible to compete in the female category? And right away, there's two there's there's two different issues there. One is um, what do we do to govern um, individuals who want to change lanes, so to speak. So I want to go from the male lane to the female lane. Um, that's one issue. That's not the castor semenya issue. The castor semenia issue is um, are there certain women um, who were you know again for continuity from birth until. They're 29 years old, always been female. um, Are there some women who should be banned from competing due to their natural abilities? Um, And that's the issue that um,
0: has proven so controversial with that case. She's called an intersex athlete. What does that mean? Is that even a real thing?
1: Yeah, so intersex is a term. um, It came and I think it's probably gone out the door. Um, The terminology now that's used is disorders of sex development. So it's DSD. Um, I'm no doctor. Um, but sitting through the CAS hearing and reading a lot about this um, the, the simple story is that Biological sex is not binary biological sex is on a spectrum So if you think of a spectrum like shades of gray um, All right, that's fine. That's science But if you want to have two categories for purpose of sport you have to draw a line somewhere on that um, spectrum so uh, the, the question has been well, how do you draw that line? And over and over again, IAAF has said, well, we're gonna let science draw that line. Um, Which, as you can imagine, right away is going to fail because if biological sex is on a spectrum, science can only tell you, good lord, it's complicated. (laughs) Right, it it can't tell you where to draw that line. So where to draw that line is subjective. Um, It mixes up societal factors, political factors, scientific factors, to be sure. and the, I think the one really hard thing for people to get their heads around, particularly people who were you know, born in the second half of the 20th century, um, is that, that the biology of sex is not neat. Um, most of us were raised, um, had a mom, had a dad, um, go to school, there's a girl's bathroom, boys' bathroom, and, and the, the shades of gray were erased from what we saw and so um you know i hear this from people and i particularly I hear this from like older relatives like yo if there's a men's room and a women's room pick one What's, why is this so complicated um but if if your expectation is that there's only typical 46 xy males and 46 xx females um, you're in for a pretty rude shock when you learn that it's really really complicated and there are individuals um, who don't match up with what is typical. And it turns out, um, like everybody else, these are human beings who wanna uh, compete, enjoy sport. Um, and like in the real <laughs> rest of the world, um, some of these individuals are talented and they're fast and they're strong. Um, and I mean, the tragic thing about the case of Castor Semenya is that instead of celebrating her just rareness and exceptionalism which it, which you know every elite athlete has some kind of genetic abnormality compared to normal people or they wouldn't be exceptional athletes um, so instead of celebrating her and her achievements which have been remarkable in the history of uh, track and field um, she's being basically persecuted for again hundred percent natural abilities.
0: Kara I want to bring you in I know you've been a defender of caster What's your perspective on this topic
2: i just think it's all really sad and i was there in 2009 when she burst onto the scene at the world championships in berlin i was running the marathon um and it was all anyone was talking about i mean it was insane i mean i had family members texting me did you see her what did she sound like i mean it was crazy and the the fact that this is still a topic of conversation 10 years later is actually like kind of mind-blowing i think just what Roger was saying, I mean, I'm a fan of hers, so obviously my opinion is, is swayed by that emotional connection, but I just think what she's gone through has been so disgusting, and I, it's just all been really, really sad. I would love to know from Roger, you know, the IAAF had their research, but they, they found an advantage in testosterone, in testosterone levels only in certain events. Is that possible? <laughs>
1: so yeah this is something so ross tucker who's a colleague of mine a sports scientist in south africa um, calls this uh, the testosterone paradox Um, and the idea is that if um, so testosterone doesn't discriminate by event right it doesn't say all right so um, you have high testosterone that means you're going to do great in the 800 meters but you're not going to do great in the the 200. (laughs) Um, so quite obviously um, there's something wrong with that research just on its face. We found that the data is bad and you can't even, can't even use it um, to say anything about anything. So IAAF shifted their justification. They, they first said, all right, the evidence shows that in performance, higher testosterone has effects only from 400 meters to one mile. Oh, coincidence, that's Castor Semenia's distances. Mm-hmm. When we found that the data couldn't support those conclusions, they said, well, never mind, forget that. Um, between 400 meters and a mile is where these athletes with disorders of sex development happen to, to run. So if we found them in other events, we'd ban them there. So they, it's kind of a circular argument. Um, and IAAF has said um, they're not targeting Castor Casterson individually, but they have said that they're targeting athletes with DSDs. Um, which." Um, If you look at the numbers that IAAF provides, and again, having looked at their numbers, take it with a grain of salt, but they say over the last 15 years at the World Championships, there have been uh, maybe 10 to 20 female athletes um, with DSD conditions. So that's out of uh, maybe 8,000 individuals, females. Who have participated in the world championships. So even using the, the IAAF numbers, it's a really, really small number of women that we're talking about um, for all of this controversy and um, debate and discussion.
2: And from my point of view, I understand that it's complicated. I never had to face Castor Semenya in a race. So I'm not I understand that it is a very complicated situation, but I wish that the IAAF was as upset about doping in the sport mm-hmm. as they are about these 15 to 20 women. Out of 8,000.
0: Cheers to that. But it's complicated. And it's becoming more complicated as we talk about potentially transgender athletes competing. As you talked about that first category of those who might be changing lanes. So it would seem that you do need a policy, a line in the sand, if you're going to have a female category. And if science can't provide that because that is, science would tell us there is no line then what are the answers?
1: So I think, I mean, my view is that, that this actually doesn't have to be complicated. It's, it's only complicated because we're making it complicated. So set aside the trans issues for a second. If you're born identified as a female, raised as a girl, in her sport as a youth, as a female, all the way up to competitive international competition as a female, and you're 29 years old, and you've always been a female, I think we can probably say, you know, your doctor at birth, your parents, your upbringing, your socialization. You're probably who you are. <laughs> so so really, IAAF should let society and the world outside of sport do all the hard work for them. There should be no question about Castor Semenya. She's a, a female with rare and unique biology. And, you know, if you're running against her, I get it too. I've talked to some of her competitors. I have a paper coming out with Madeline Pape, who raced against her um, about a decade ago. Um, and if 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 all you see is the back end of Caster in front of you, yeah, I, I get it. And you could say it's not fair, but if I'm playing basketball against LeBron James, that's not fair either, <laughs> right? So um, it's the sort of thing where um, you can go across sport over time and find individuals that have um, unique biology that not everybody has Um, so you know if you're a a basketball player and you have a tumor on your pituitary gland you can have um, you know gigantism like Andre the Giant had and you can be um, like George Murashan the Romanian who was like seven foot eight Um, not the most coordinated talented athlete but he had a professional basketball career because he had unique biology Um, the equivalent would be to say all right um, we're going to say that individuals with tumors on their pituitary are not allowed to play basketball, which is ridiculous and we wouldn't say that. Um, so um, I think that if IAAF were to just say, you know what, it's, we don't decide who's male or female for all their lives, um, that, that's something that, that we receive. We don't dictate it. Um, the analogy I use is nationality. So. So IWF doesn't tell you if you're British or Romanian or South African. Um, that, that comes to them. But if you say, oh, I'm a Brazilian soccer player and I want to go play for Qatar, and by the way, they're giving me a passport and $10 million, um, then FIFA steps in and says, well, wait, wait, we're going to regulate changing nationality. Um, but they can't tell you what your original nationality is. So if the sports organizations want to regulate people who change categories, um, And there's no rules for female to male, but there is for male to to female. That's perfectly reasonable and makes a lot of sense. Um, What exactly should be done in that case, again, is really complicated, because in a sport like boxing, you're gonna have different rules for transgender athletes than you would, say, in um, biathlon or equestrian, even. Um, Because the the differences between men and women um, matter a lot in boxing, and they don't so much in horse horse riding. So I get it and I understand that it's really complicated in that case, but what I, and, and this is another unfortunate thing about IWF is they've tried to conflate those two issues by saying that, um, you know, Castor Semenya is really a man and we have to apply the same rules to her as we would to a transgender athlete, which is number one, objectively false, um, and number two, it's just entirely disrespectful to tell someone they're not who they are.
0: Well, and it and it makes the media and the public dialogue confused, or it, it causes confusion for sure. with fans who are also then taught to conflate those issues.
1: Absolutely, for sure. And I mean, so so part of the problem, and I, I've I've become more sensi- sensitized to this, is that the the gender stereotypes that we all carry around that you get from from you know when you first come into this world to now um are hard to see past um and so some people will look at Castor Semenya, um who's actually i mean i met her i spent a week with her she's smaller and slighter than i mean i think that's in general with most runners um you see them on tv or something and you think they're bigger and stronger than they are um she's not particularly i mean maybe she's tall for a, a runner she's probably five seven, five, eight, um, very slight, but she's muscular. So some people will look at her and say, she looks like a man. What that person is really saying is, she looks like the stereotype I carry around in my head of what a man is supposed to look like. So over time, and it being on this issue, um, it's very different to look at Castor Semenya and say, well, to me, she looks like a woman, because she is. And so if that doesn't match up with your stereotype, then it's not caster that has to change, it's your stereotype. Um, And that's, I think, really hard for people to get their heads around um, because the the stereotypes are are invisible and hard for us to see and they're just something that's kind of natural. So I get it why people would say that. But um, once you realize that people are really diverse in their biological makeup, That maybe you need a little bit more inclusive perspective on you know what a man looks like what a woman looks like Um, and you know there are there are sports in which males who are more feminine feminine looking feminine um, in their build say ice skating or ice dancing um, you know that's an asset for them people don't say well you can't you can't be an ice dancer because you look too effeminate It's kind of silly. We laugh at it, but it it doesn't go the other way because we treat women differently than we treat men in society.
0: It's fascinating. What's your next step on this topic? What are you doing? You mentioned the paper coming out, but what 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 else are you doing to advocate in this space?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I keep thinking, you know, well, that was interesting. I'm going to move on to the next thing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it just keeps going on and on. Um, So with um, my colleague Madeline Pape, who's a former um, Australian, I think she's the national champion in the 800 meters, um, was in the Olympics, Um, she had injuries, she's retired now, she's actually studying um, science and politics. So um, it's a good collaborator for me. We have a paper coming out where we look at this. this approach that IAAF and um, the sports community has had to say, all right, we're gonna measure testosterone levels in people, and then we're gonna use that to tell who's a man and who's a woman. And the argument that we make, it's a little bit complicated. I'll see if I can explain it. Um, What they do is they take DSD athletes, and they say, all right, we're gonna take you out of our study pool. We're gonna put you over here. We're gonna study uh, what they call normal, healthy males and females and we're gonna come up with a, a reference range for, for women's testosterone and men's testosterone. Then we're gonna go back to the DSD athletes, measure their testosterone, and see which category it fits into. What we're saying is, why are you pulling out the DSD athletes to begin with? They already have a sex. Um, it's either male or female. And if you look at the literature um, about, of, of a the details don't matter, but of a particular DSD that IWF is concerned about, about 30% of the individuals with that condition identify as female, and about 70% as male. Um, so what if you said, I'm just gonna keep everybody in the study pool to begin with. I'm gonna keep the, the, the females on one side, whether they have DSDs or not, and the males on the other side, whatever their conditions are, um, DSDs or not. And then you take their testosterone. What you find in that case is a complete overlap of male and female. Um, and so our argument is is the, this, again, it's it's not the science of testosterone that tells you who's male or female. It's the decision by the researcher before they even take any blood to determine who's male and who's female. It's a circular argument. So they're they're um, they're building into their conclusions um, their assumptions. Right. So our paper. Um, Hopefully, it will open people's eyes to the fact that um, the games that have been played with the science of testosterone and biological sex um, to prove a, an outcome that was predetermined. Um, so, um, and the analogy we use so, this is kind of interesting, too. So, in the 1940s, um, a, a group of medical doctors. Um, and artists wanted to find the perfect man and perfect woman. So what they did is they took measurements um, from 15,000 women that were taken by the U.S. government um, for the garment industry to help uh, help them make clothes the right size. Um, and they said, we're going to find the, and they took measurements of men from the military. Um, we're going to find who the ideal man and woman is. And we're going to do this by taking the average. Um, so if you take the average, it, it eliminates all the error. So, so the argument that, the, that one of the um, one of the, the, the authors of this project um, said is, they, he said, you know, a, a, a skinny woman isn't attractive and a fat woman's not an attractive, but someone who's closer to the average is attractive. And if we do that for all of their body parts, we'll come up with the perfect individual. Um, so they did that, and it was uh, Norma and Norm-man, so <laughs> they're the normal Americans, um, <laughs> and then um, a museum in Cleveland bought these statues that they made of the perfect man and woman and they went on a hunt at the Cleveland plain dealer for the perfect woman and they had people send in to see who best approximates these, this ideal and they didn't really find anybody who fit they found a woman who was close but they said well this shows how perfect they are well here's the here's the, the issue um, they only took white college-age women to, to take their measurements and white 20-year-old men Um, so they excluded and they they had to be um, american-born so no immigrants no people of color um, no variation um, that you see in the real world so um, and it turns out that the people behind this project um, were part of the american eugenics movement so it was obviously racist and sexist Um, but what what they said is look, these ideals that were represented in these statues, this is what science and statistics tells us is perfection. Don't don't talk to us about values or- Science. Yeah, this is science. So the argument we make in our paper is, look, this is the same thing that the sports world is doing to um, athletes like Castor Semenya, is um, they're deciding what sort of statistics to use. They're using it from a, a subpopulation, not everybody, and then I mean, imagine if you took Norma, the statue, which you know looks like your average college co-ed, um, and you took it to the WNBA. You'd say, well, these women are, are not normal. They're not perfect. They're unhealthy. Um, it's the same thing. So what happens if you take this testosterone reference ranges that um, the IAAF uses and apply it to women who aren't in those pools when they make them? You'll come up with the same sort of conclusions. So that's. So, the argument we're going to make in this is, hopefully, um, ideally, it opens people's eyes up to the misuse of science to discriminate against a subset of people.
0: And that testosterone may not be a reliable way to draw any lines.
1: It is not. Which is, um, I mean, if again, if, um, if we were just to do you know, testosterone between me and Kara, I have more. So you could use it to s- decide who's a man, who's a woman. But we, aren't, we are not reflective of the true variation that you find out in the real world. Um, and again, all of the action in those sort of studies are at the beginning. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of mind boggling that people would accept the idea that, all right, we're going to put people in sex categories in order to determine how to put people into sex categories. <laughs> it's a completely circular argument.
0: So let's talk about clean sport. You met Kara, my understanding, by bringing her into your classroom to talk about doping. Yes. And obviously she's been very public about her stance on that. So I first just want to ask you that. How did you meet Kara? And then as it relates to that, how did you get into this topic of doping and clean sport as a scientist, as somebody who's looking at this kind of stuff? Yeah,
1: I don't remember exactly. I, I actually don't either. I think it was like huh. five years ago or so. Um, I think it was through Shanna. Um, I was Most trying to, likely. I was trying, so the hardest, the, so I, I, over the last five or six years, I've taught a, a big course called Introduction to Sports Governance, um, which basically tackles a lot of interesting, sticky political questions in sport, and you know, no shortage of material. The hardest voice, always, in that class to, to get before the students and I try to bring everybody from sports administrators, um, retired athletes, um, but the, the hardest voice to get is the elite athlete, um, Olympic level athlete, willing to talk about the sticky topics. Um, so um, I, 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 I was so pleased that Kara came because very few <laughs> people would come and even I think I remember like the the first time you came to my class you were kind of a different person than like
2: this past year yeah <laughs> I was growing yeah I was nervous yeah, right yeah, like, I was nervous you had had uh, you had had Travis Tygart and Lance Armstrong and I was like what am I walking into here you know like so I didn't and I didn't know you that well um but yeah, I definitely became more confident in my stance as I went to his class. One of the things that I thought was so interesting is you really are good at taking the emotional aspect out of it and just looking at circumstance and science and things like that. And so I mean, you you have a good relationship. I mean, you know so much about the Russian scandal, doping scandal. And tell us a little bit about that. Like you are you know a lot about that.
1: Yeah. Um, well, doping is, is is I think the um, is is with sex testing is probably the quintessential issue at the intersection of science, politics, regulation, policy, and sport, um, because anti doping efforts are, in theory, supposed to be based on evidence, um, and how that evidence is used, um, both to protect sport. Um, but also to protect the due process rights of athletes is really, really interesting. So the Russian doping scandal is um, is pretty fascinating. Um, I, I did have the chance to have the Stepanovs, um, Yulia and Vitaly, come to my class a couple times. In fact, the first public appearance they made when they came out of hiding um, was um, we had Travis Tiger from USADA, and I know you guys had him on an earlier podcast. Um he was giving a, a distinguished lecture for us. We had a you know full auditorium full of people, and they made a surprise, unannounced visit. Um, and you know, people who come to see Travis Tigert talk, um, you know, they know something about sport, um, and right away um, they knew who the uh, Stepanovs were. And there was like gasps, and um, they spoke for a while. People were crying in the audience, and um, it's a pretty emotional thing. So um, having had a chance to get to know them over the last few years. Um, has been great, um, but what you realize when you you know when you strip away the um, the institutions and the geopolitics and it's Russia and Vladimir Putin's involved and um, Icarus and you know, people will know <laughs> if they know what those things are. But you talk to like um, Yulia and you realize that that you know this profoundly affects the lives of a, a real person. In in this case, in a really negative way, they had to flee their home country. Um, their son, I don't know, will he ever be able to see his grandparents or aunts and uncles? It's, it's pretty sad. Um, but the Russian doping scandal, I think, r- revealed um, it should be obvious to everyone that, that WADA, World Anti-Doping Agency, um, the IOC, um, are pretty much incapable of, of governing doping, anti-doping efforts in the way that I think my understanding is that most most athletes would like it to be governed, um, so it's um,
0: why. What are the key issues there?
1: So, WADA operates um, as a um, pseudo international organization. It's a nonprofit. Um, it's been around. It's its twentieth year now, um, and it's kind of a glass half empty, glass half full situation. Um, but WADA does not have the ability to um, to sanction countries. It's not. It's it's not uh, the United Nations. Um, it operates under an international convention, which is sort of like a treaty. Um, but WADA has chosen over um, its existence to focus on um, regulating athletes, uh, regulating individuals. So when you have um, a, a, a state-based organization, um, Rusada, um, that's engaged in um, engineering a massive doping scheme so they can win more medals. Um, what do you do? What what can be done? So there's this big messy nasty fight between um, WADA and IOC um, over who had power, how far should the 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 issues go? Um, it's it's very political, geopolitical, because it went all the way up to the top of the Russian government. Um, and then the resolution um, I think for most people, I'd be interested in Kara's view, has been um, pretty unsatisfactory. It kind of just has gone away um, with no real consequences um, except uh, maybe for some of the individual athletes who um, in most instances I would guess were, were victims. Of the Russian scheme, um, not masterminds or perpetrators. So, but the the, the teeth of uh, anti-doping uh, are focused on the athlete, not the 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 forces, larger political forces that might be behind uh, doping efforts. So, that I think is the 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 tragedy of the Russian doping scheme. Um, and in the big picture. Um, It's probably not unique or rare, because if you look at the the evidence, the limited evidence there is on doping prevalence in elite athletics, let's say, um, you know, in a a round number, it's about 50% of athletes. So yeah, were the Russians part of that 50%? Sure. Um, But what percent, were they 5% of that 50%? So so doping is an enormous issue, um, but the inability of WADA to deal with the, the Russian situation I think it's just reflective of weaknesses and I mean again it's this is the glass half empty there's still a lot of work to do in anti-doping um, but it's just reflective of the the I don't know toothlessness of, of anti-doping at, at the moment.
0: So what are the answers as someone who thinks all day long about sports governance? Do you have a paper on how to structure WADA in a way that would make it have teeth?
1: Yeah, so with uh, Eric Boya, who's a um, a doctor, um, researcher um, in Norway, we have a a paper um, that just came out on um, scientific integrity and anti-doping. And we make a few recommendations. Um, So one of them is to actually invest a very small amount of money into Doping prevalence studies. So we really need to know how many athletes are really doping. How many are breaking the rules out there? Um, like I said, there are. Uh, there's a few studies out there, and the numbers are massive. No matter what, whose numbers you believe, the amount of athletes doping is is much larger than the number who are caught. So um, I was. Uh, I think it was in my class uh, when Travis Tiger was here this year. Um, I asked him about the 50% number um, that was from the IAAF-supported study, and he said he didn't think it was that high. He thought it was maybe 15%. All right, let's take 15%. So 1% of athletes are caught. So that's 15. You know, 14 go free for everyone that gets caught under Travis's number. Take the IAAF research, it's 49 go free for everyone that gets caught. It's a big problem. Um, if we're going to know if anti-doping efforts are successful we have to know if that prevalence number goes down over time and the only way to do that is to monitor and actually get that so the 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 sports community for reasons that i think everybody can understand has been resistant to prevalence studies number one it would show how big the problem is and number two it would show how ineffectual current policies actually are so first thing to do is all right let's uh Let's open our eyes and see what we're dealing with here. Um, the second big thing that could be done is to dramatically shrink the size of the prohibited list. Um, the prohibited list right now has more than 300 substances and methods on it. Um, and given some of the clauses in the prohibited list, you know, substances like, you know, this one, it could be an infinite number. It's too big to be managed. Um, you cannot effectively, um, test for all those substances for all athletes, um, which means that some things are on the list that that people either don't pay attention to or get a free pass. Um, I would love to go to uh, anti-doping scientists and go to athletes, um, both, and say, all right, if you had to put thirty your top thirty substances on the list, what would they be? I'd bet there'd be a pretty good consensus on that. Um, Lance Armstrong. Um, When I talk to him, he distinguishes between high octane doping and low octane doping. So let's put the high octane stuff on the list. Um, I recommended um, that we use um, caffeine as a discriminant. Um, Caffeine was once on the list, it's off the list. Obviously, it's ubiquitous in society. It's probably the most studied performance enhancing drug. And yes, it is performance enhancing, um, as everybody knows at 6 a.m. in the morning. if a substance does not give you a bigger boost than caffeine, why are we even talking about it? Because you can take caffeine. right? Um, so use that as a discriminant. So if we shrink the size of the list, it becomes uh, more um, manageable to actually deal with it. Um, we can focus our science and our efforts on those things that really matter. Um, I mean, right now, there's plenty of things that athletes take that aren't on the list in the hope that it gives them a performance advantage. And that's... It's rational and logical. Um, WADA has a watch list. They, they put certain substances on a list um, for a year before they get elevated to the prohibited list. Um, and what I've heard from athletes is um, that's like, you know, ding, ding, ding.
0: <laughs> go look at that yeah, list. Go look at that. that that's might, where that the might good actually, stuff is. Yeah, That might help <laughs> you.
1: So, um, and the, I guess the other thing is to, to make anti doping more evidence based. Um, to get on the prohibited list, a substance has to meet. Um, two out of three criteria. Um, you know, One is it has to convey an actual performance benefit. Um, it has to um, ha- pose a risk to the athlete, and it has to violate the spirit of sport, whatever that is. And so what WADA says is that means we can put anything on the list we want. Um, it doesn't have to be evidence-based. Um, and a, a good example of what can happen without evidence is meldonium. This is the Mar- Maria Sharapova drug meldonium was put on the list um, for the simple reason that a lot of um, eastern european and russian athletes were taking it and the idea was well if they're taking it they must have some performance benefits Um, so let's put it on the list Um, however there wasn't really a lot of research done on meldonium and it got on the list and they discovered after it was on the list and after a bunch of athletes started getting busted for it that it actually stays in the human body for an extended period of time, many months. I don't know if it's four months, six months, whatever. But um, I think it was January 2016 when it became illegal. All of a sudden, all these athletes got busted for it. And many of the athletes said, well, wait, I'm following the rules. You know, I had my last, whatever, meldonium um, supplement in December. And so they actually did the research and they found out, oh, it does stay in the human body. So this is a mess. So there was like 500 and some athletes who were caught with uh, meldonium in their system in 2016, and I think only 11 were sanctioned um, because they couldn't tell if they broke the rules or not. Um, the the great irony for Maria Sharapova is um, whoever was advising her probably should be should have been fired. I don't know if they were, but had she not done that, you know, teary eyed. I'm sorry, press conference where she admitted to taking Meldonium and waited one week, um, she would have got off like everybody else because, you know, tr- whatever the truth is, she could have just said, oh, I had my last, t- you know, supplement right. in December. And it would have been a non issue.
0: She didn't know the loophole in time.
1: She didn't know. But this is, I mean, nobody did. And this is the problem of putting something on the list that you don't really understand. And to this day, there is no evidence that Meldonium offered a performance benefit or posed a risk. To anyone. So it's the sort of thing where a lot of anti doping involves chase, chasing shadows. Um, yeah, so the athlete maybe is intending to cheat and maybe they're trying to get a boost from a substance. Um, but if I gave you a placebo and said, you don't know it's a placebo, but I say this is the, a magical pill that's going to make you perform better, you will perform better. Right. And so some people have said, well, should we ban placebos then? Right, And the answer is, of course not, because it's, it doesn't have any performance enhancing effect. So just making anti-doping a little bit more firm and grounded in evidence um, would be a big step going forward. Now, this is important not just for catching athletes who are doping, but also protecting athletes who are caught up in the system who didn't cheat. Right. And there's too many troubling examples of athletes who are caught up in the – anti-doping system um, who can't defend themselves um, again because there's really poor evidence out there um, and it's hard to defend against poor evidence when you're caught up in the anti-doping system
0: you're talking a lot though about the science of it and the substances but how do you get the powers that be at WADA at the IOC to actually care (laughs) because at times It seems like they don't like they would rather uphold the status quo than really do what they're supposed to do.
1: Yeah, so I mean it's not unique to the sports world, but you know WADA, the IOC, it it is. um, I think it's it's safe to say an old old boys club, um, old men's club these days, and it's it's pretty closed circles, and it's you're either in the in the circle or you're not. Um, I think the biggest reform, and Eric Boya and I make this is is greater athlete empowerment and so i don't know if the what the answer is if it's an athlete's union or some sort of organization of um olympic athletes but really the the athletes commissions you know ioc and wada i mean they're fine they're important but no one would mistake the sort of um, power that athletes have in international sport with like the NFL Players Union or Major League Baseball or, you know, I mean, just look at the women's national team in soccer. Um, Athletes in in most other settings, except college sports, in most other settings have a big voice in how they're governed. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, probably WADA and IOC would, would, would never willingly want athletes to have a bigger voice. But that would be one way to get a system that's more reflective of, number one, the due process rights of athletes, um, but a more fair um, or at least legitimate anti-doping system.
0: Athletes organizing. We talked a little bit about that yesterday, Kara. What do you think? I know you were asked that question at the PCC conference. How could that even happen? I failed
2: miserably in my response. Yeah, I just, I totally agree. We discussed this yesterday as well, that that is what will bring change, but the actual, application of that what that looks like I don't know and I was put on the spot at the PCC and I was like that's not my job I don't know um but yeah we have to figure out a way because just as Roger was citing like when the athletes come together then they get stuff done
1: one thing to for everybody to understand though is that when athletes govern themselves like they do in the professional sports leagues in the U.S. the anti-doping rules they put in place are always always less restrictive than that that currently exists, um, at least on paper, with uh, international sport through WADA. So, um, I think everyone has to understand that that if you get more athlete power in sport, don't expect that it means that anti-doping gets stronger. It might get better, but it also might be weaker. So, um, I mean, the NFL is a perfect example that you get, you know, busted for testosterone and, oh, you're gonna miss four weeks. And you get busted. And you're, for the the the
2: MV, you're the champ at yeah. the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> that's right,
0: exactly. And, and you still get a couple million dollars at least. Right. That year. And,
2: but
1: everybody's happy with it. The athletes right. are happy with it. The fans are happy with it. And um, you know, we get the anti-doping system that you know, not that's perfect, but the one that that we ultimately deserve. Um, so the question is, you know, whose voices should be represented in making those decisions? And I, I, for me, the question is, as, as a non-athlete, is, is is anti-doping something that institutions do to athletes, or is it something that athletes do to themselves? And so far, the answer has been this is what institutions do to athletes. And again, we we're full circle back to the Russian doping scandal, where they, <laughs> WADA and IOC couldn't handle a, a a systemic failure like that.
0: Yes. There's so much more we could talk about with you, Roger. I feel like we need to have you back on because we there's should. a, there's a whole rabbit hole that I just wanted to go down, but I'm not going to go down cause we've got it. We've got to wrap it up here. Final thoughts. And I want you to talk to the fans for a second because a lot of our audience members are just fans who care about this topic and want to be able to believe. So what would you tell those people?
1: Um, it's great belief. I mean, see what you see on, I mean, I watch, I enjoy athletics. I mean, we, we have to be able to understand the world's a complicated place. It's not perfect. Um, the reality is what you see on TV when people line up, you know, for the, the big 100 meter sprint, men or women, is that some people come from rich countries and have had great training and they have the best shoe companies and they have technology, um, that helps them run faster. Um, some are doping, um, some have been caught in their back, and probably a whole bunch more are there that are doping and have never been caught. Um, that's the messiness, the reality. You know, in some respects, the wonderfulness of the world we live in. Um, that shouldn't take away from people's enjoyment of the fact that, all right, with all that messiness, here we are. It's great. Let's let's see what happens. Um, I mean, it's, I was watching the U.S. Open last night. You know, Roger Federer crashed out the other day, and you know he gets on his private jet and flies don't think that's not an advantage guy, right. compared to the qualifier who has to drive in his car
0: flies it's, to the next yeah,
1: tournament yeah so it's i mean it's life's not fair um but at the same time sport is wonderful and fantastic and we can still enjoy it you know not despite those imperfections but because that's that's also
0: part of it all right we'll, we'll leave it at that then roger thanks so much Thank for joining you. us thanks for having me so there you go roger pelkey everyone thanks to him for joining us and for providing his educated and objective perspective on some of these really tricky topics and I think we'll definitely have to have him on again because I think he'll be a good expert to consistently tap to cover off on some of these topics which can be very very complicated. Hopefully you learned something so thank you for joining us and of course as always you can check out all of the information about the Clean Sport Collective by going to the Clean Sport website cleansport.org there, you can sign the pledge, which is another way to get involved or encourage brands that you would like to see get involved in and purchase. You can have them sign the pledge there. And then you can follow us on social media and join the conversation there by going to at Cleansport Co. That's at Cleansport Co on Instagram and Twitter, where you can get updated regularly on all things Clean Sport and jump in with your own perspective as you might have it. So. With that, we'll wrap it for this week and talk to you guys next week.